Good morning. It is Monday, October 25th, 2021, and this is DC Signal to Noise. Guys, since we last checked in, corn and soybean harvest have crossed the halfway point. The backlog at the nation's ports, it just continues to build. And months of drought in California have turned into mudslide season with heavy rains resulting from a bomb cyclone. My gosh, terrible weather out there. The baseball season has been reduced to the Braves and the Astros. Okay, I don't mind the Braves being in there, but the Astros, again, some people say that it's their redemption tour, whatever. Uh, my Cyclones handed the Oklahoma State Cowboys their first loss of the season. Welcome, I am Agritacos Chip Flory. That is Pro Farmer Policy Analyst Jim Wiesmeyer. And at the bottom of the screen, our special guest, David Wasserman, editor of the Cook Political Report, covering the House of Representatives. David, welcome to Signal to Noise. Thank you, Chip. It's better to be the bottom of the screen than the bottom of the barrel. <laughs> That's a good point. Good point right there. Jim, before we get into the conversation with Dave, let's go ahead and talk a little bit about what to expect this week. Because House Speaker Nancy Pelosi is certainly indicating that there is going to be uh, at least two votes come midweek. Yeah, well, at an actual vote, probably on the traditional bipartisan infrastructure bill. That's the around, you know, $1 trillion bill, either Wednesday or Thursday. And then coupled with that, they want an agreement, not a vote on the uh, on the build back better plan that looks to be about 1.75 you know trillion dollars Jeff but there appears to be uh, progress it just so happens president biden leaves for uh, europe you know two yeah. events uh, on thursday and they really you know want to get this uh, you know oh, done, yeah. at least from the infrastructure bill yeah if he shows up um, at at a global climate event without either one of these bills passed, Jim, I, it, it's, it, he's going to have egg on his face, won't he? Yes, yes. And then yeah. as we'll get in with David, uh, this also has election overtones with an upcoming election November 2nd in Virginia. Uh, so, you know, we'll ask David about that. Okay, very good. Uh, let's go ahead and, and bring David into the conversation. I want to start with this, Jim, if I could. Sure. Uh, because you know my fascination with House Speaker Nancy Pelosi. It, uh, unbelievable strategist. Uh, over the years, she has she, she has uh, played her role as Speaker of the House exceptionally well. Is she losing her edge? Is she starting to lose that that you know, do we do are we seeing the speaker? as we've seen her in the past? Well, look, I, I don't think she's lost her edge so much as it's pretty clear to the world that this is her final term. And mm -hmm. in fact, the, the chances are pretty good that she won't serve her, her full term, but will re resign after a package is passed uh, and you know, a, attempt to perhaps influence the race for her successor in San Francisco. However, you know, that plays into the mentality of, of House Democrats when they know that she may not be the one making decisions over uh, over uh, key 
uh, leadership mm -hmm. or, or, or uh, committee posts uh, heading forward. So that reduces her influence to, to strong arm people into supporting certain elements of legislation. And that's made this process more difficult. Now, Dave, if she does retire early, who, who's the favorite candidate, at least from her perspective? For, to succeed her as, as yes. the Democratic leader? Yes. So Hakeem Jeffries uh, is Democrats' apparent speaker-in-waiting. Now, of course, uh, mm. you know, we'll get into this, but uh, Democrats are probably not the favorites to hold their majority beyond 2022. However, uh, there's been this long-running rivalry between uh, the second Democrat in the House, uh, Steny Hoyer, and Pelosi. And Pelosi, even uh, after decades, does not want uh, Hoyer to, uh, to, to succeed her as speaker. There is some thought that um, would Democrats, if she were to retire early before the end of this term, uh, allow Hoyer the honor of serving as speaker until this Congress is up, I'm not sure Pelosi would even go for that. Uh, they've been mm -hmm. such such long running rivals. So it'll it'll be interesting to see how this plays out. But I I do suspect that uh, that we will see Jeffries ascend to the top of Democrats' leadership ladder one way or the other by 2023. He is from New York, from Brooklyn, um, right? Okay. Uh, as I want to get to a local election first, uh, actually two, yeah. November 2nd, governor races in, in Virginia, my, in your home state now and New Jersey, you know, you, 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 what are your predictions on those and why? Yeah. Look, Jersey is closer than, than the reputation of the state would suggest. Uh, governor Murphy has a single digit lead, a high single digit lead, according to the average of polls over Jack Chatterelli. And look, I don't think that that race is uh, in danger for Democrats of flipping Republican, but the Virginia race is a genuine toss up at this point. And I know, Jim, you've predicted that uh, Youngkin <clears throat> will win. I do think in the final week of the race, you could see voters on the Democratic side begin to uh, come alive a bit more. There's been certainly much more energy and activism on the Republican side of this race because the party out of the White House generally has that going for them. And that's true this time. Uh, I don't quite think Youngkin has moved enough to the center uh, to, to uh, distinguish himself from Trump in order to get over the top. I think he can very easily get within uh, two or three points of McAuliffe, but actually winning a state that voted for Biden by 10, I think is going to be very, very hard. Yeah. And then what signal would that give? Say if Yunkin did come within two to three points, is that mm -hmm. is that bragging rights for the Republicans or will the Democrats just say we won, we won? That is a, hmm. a, a result that would be consistent with Republicans taking back control of Congress in 2022. Keep in mind that we're going to be watching the difference between the margin in these races, both Virginia and New Jersey, and the presidential margin in uh, in in uh, 2020 so you know you've got in virginia uh, a state that voted for biden by 10. if youngkin comes within two well you know that's an eight point republican swing and so even if democrats are declaring victory remember you know even half that swing would easily tip control of congress to, to the republicans in 2022 given the other states that are up glenn youngkin is running a campaign that we would easily win in a state like north carolina or Georgia. It's just that Virginia has become a pretty blue state.
Well, let's go to your house uh, forecast. I know it's early for 2022. Mm -hmm. You always have caveats, and I don't blame you for that because things can change. But if you had to predict today, what would be the outcome of the 2022 House elections? I think Republicans would gain probably 25 seats in the House. Wow. Now, of course, this is a redistricting year. And a couple months ago, it looked like the leading threat to Democrats' majority was the changing maps. But the, uh, Biden's uh, uh, dip in approval has overtaken that as, as the leading threat to Democrats. I actually think the, the net partisan change from new maps is likely to be uh, quite modest. Uh, when you add up the states that Republicans get to gerrymander, uh, and they have control in Texas and Florida and North Carolina and Georgia, um, it, there are far more states and districts under Republican control than under Democratic control. Democrats have New York and Illinois and New Mexico and Maryland. The overall difference is 187 seats that Republicans redraw to 75 seats for Democrats. But because Republicans have already gerrymandered so many of their own states, uh, I, I think the max that they can squeeze out of redistricting is probably, uh, you know, five seats or so. Uh, what they'll do instead uh, beyond that is, is to uh, secure, safeguard their own districts by moving a lot of vulnerable seats to higher ground. Dave, but, we have a lot of Illinois viewers and, and, and listeners. What are, you know, what are some key uh, Republicans who may lose a seat or not even, you know, qualify for a seat? Well, Illinois Democrats over the weekend actually released a new, even more gerrymandered congressional proposal uh, it looks like a toddler uh, threw spaghetti at the wall uh, to draw this map. <laughs> and it, actually what Democrats did to carve up downstate Illinois uh, was, was, was quite aggressive. Uh, they put uh, uh, Darren LaHood in the Peoria area in the same district as Adam Kinzinger uh, from outside Chicago. And uh, look, Kinzinger would be the underdog in any Republican primary, but, uh, but LaHood would be the favorite in that race. And then downstate, uh, they've, they've put uh, Mike Bost from uh, the extreme southern end of the state in a district with Mary Miller, uh, who is from Coles County. And that uh, district, uh, you know, I, I'm curious whether we'll see that, that Republican primary come to fruition. I suspect that Miller could run in uh, in a district to, to the north, which is uh, uh, just as Republican, uh, perhaps against Rodney Davis. They've, uh, Rodney Davis has a district now that goes all the way from Quincy to Indiana and back over to his hometown in Taylorville. Uh, so, you know, that's a case where you know he'll face a choice between running in a heavily Democratic district or perhaps running in a Republican primary against uh, Mary Miller, who is far more pro-Trump if they do uh, end up passing this map. Overall, Democrats would likely get 14 out of the 17 seats in Illinois under this proposal, which is up from 13 out of 18 today. Oh. You know, Chip, you have any other house questions? Well, I, I want to remind everybody that if you would like to be part of the conversation, look at the right side of your screen. There's a comments tab. You can click on that, and then that should bring up a dialogue box for you at the bottom of the page. Uh, that you can you can enter your question or your comment there. Um, yeah, the 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 top issues, the key issues that are going to get the Republicans twenty five uh, uh, victories in November of twenty twenty two. David, what are the those key issues that we're going to have to pay 
closest attention to? Well, I think there are three that are driving uh, uh, Biden's lower approval ratings. And then mm -hmm. the number one is inflation and the cost of goods. This is something yeah. that uh, that is not talked about uh, enough in D.C. because uh, most of, of the, the in crowd in D.C. doesn't feel the pinch to the extent the rest of the country does. Yep. And so, look, we've seen double-digit declines among independent voters on Biden's handling of the economy. I believe that's being driven by the by rising concerns about the cost of goods and now gas. And then, you know, issue two would be immigration. Look, this this issue has uh, has you know absolutely debilitated Democrats uh, over the last five years since Trump came on the scene, and. Now that it's it's more prominent than ever, it plays into Republicans' strengths and and uh, Republicans' message that Democrats ha are the party of open borders. Well, that's resonating when we're seeing the imagery that we're seeing on TV. Um, and so Biden's approval rating when it comes to handling of immigration, the average is in the high 30s. Uh, and then on overall competence, I, th I think uh, Democrats mm -hmm. have taken a real hit after Afghanistan, not not just because of the specifics of what's happened, but because Biden came into office with the attitude of, I've got this. I've got more experience than anyone who's come in, into the White House before, especially the last guy uh, who, who had no experience in, in uh, federal policy or foreign policy entering uh, the Oval Office. And that's been dented. And so voters overall malaise with regard to the administration uh, it, it doesn't just you know fire up Republicans, uh, but Democrats are having a really hard time motivating their base, especially when they don't have anything to sell them legislatively at the moment. You know, Dave, I want to move to the Senate. Uh, what is your prediction overall for you know 2022 Senate and specific states? Because we've already got comments before on which specific states do you see as uh, you know net winners or losers, you know, relative to the political parties. Jim, I think if the election were held next week, Republicans would pretty much sweep the battlefield of competitive Senate races. Democrats are, badly want to pick up Wisconsin, Pennsylvania, and North Carolina. Those seats in Pennsylvania and North Carolina are open seats. Democrats have some pretty good candidates running there. But given that Biden uh, lost North Carolina, only very narrowly won Wisconsin and Pennsylvania, and we're talking about a, you know, a, at least a five-point environmental shift in Republicans' direction, uh, that would tip those races Republican. And then Republicans are on offense in Arizona and Georgia uh, and in Nevada and New Hampshire. And you know, Arizona and Georgia, two of the closest states in the 2020 election, uh, both Democratic senators uh, were on the ballot in 2020, Mark Kelly and Raphael Warnock. They have to run for, for, uh, for full terms in 2022. Uh, Republicans may end up nominating Herschel Walker in Georgia, which could uh, could be a, you know, a, a real risk to Republicans considering his personal baggage. But in Arizona, um, it, it's possible Republicans are, are going to nominate, uh, you know, either the former state adjutant general, Mick McGuire, or Blake Masters, who's a, 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 a venture capitalist, or uh, uh, perhaps... Uh, Mark Burnovich, the attorney general, 
Republicans have a pretty clear primary field in Nevada where Adam Laxalt is going to be their candidate against Catherine Cortez Masto. In New Hampshire, it's all coming down to whether Governor Chris Sununu gets into that race against Maggie Hassan. The indications are that he will. Uh, I think Republicans would pick up uh, likely three seats if the, if the election were held next week. Uh, I'd say all those seats go their way, except perhaps Georgia. So that would be 5347. 5347. Okay. The only one surprise I think that people would hear would be the Arizona because Kelly has raised a lot of money, hasn't he? Not that money can totally buy elections, but that would be surprising to, I think, some listeners. Well, keep in mind, Jim, that Mark Kelly spent, I believe, more than $100 million in the 2020 cycle. And he was up in the polls double digits for most of the fall against Martha McSally, who who was already badly damaged by her 2018 race. And yet he still only won that 51 to 49. And we're talking about a much more favorable climate for Republicans this next time around, potentially. So it's hard to see how he wins. I, I think we tend to overrate the value of campaign money. There's such a thing as diminishing returns. Once you've made your case to voters with $20 million, you know, it's not clear that the next $20 million is going is to buy you as much. I think we also saw this dynamic in, in some smaller states in 2020, like Maine, where Democrats badly outspent Susan Collins, but voters started getting suspicious of where that money was coming from. Uh, because so much of it was coming from from you know out of staters who badly wanted a democratic senate. Yes, yeah. I think Mike Bloomberg learned that as well when he yeah. ran for president, right? Yeah, yeah, <laughs> that's that's exactly right. David, what is the condition of the parties? What how united are the visions of the Republicans and the Democrats? Uh, look, it's it's basically Mars and Venus right now, and. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, Trump is is consolidating his grip on uh, his party from essentially a shadow presidency. Uh, I believe he is likely to run in 2024, likelier than Joe Biden uh, to run. Uh, and, you know, Anthony Gonzalez, who uh, is one of the 10 Republicans who voted to impeach Trump back in January, you know, he announced his retirement uh, last month uh, by calling Trump a, a cancer on the country. But if this cancer is eating anything, it's the remaining resistance uh, in the Republican Party to Trump. So a lot of these Republican primaries we're seeing for House and Senate races aren't just playing out in Ohio or or Arizona. Uh, They're playing out in Palm Beach and Bedminster, where Republicans are vying for this all-important endorsement. So what odds do you give of Trump running in 2024? I'd put it in the 60% range, and I'd probably put Biden's odds somewhere south of 40%. Wow. And if not uh, Trump, who who were a few yeah. know, likely candidates, and the same for Biden, who who's left in the Democratic Party, you know, that's of, you know, presidential timber? Well, first on the Republican side, I put the field into three buckets, more or less. You've got your governors, your senators, and your former uh, Trump administration officials. And, you know, in the governor's bucket, Ron DeSantis is the leader for now. Uh, I think he could be the flavor of the moment uh, more than anything else because of the, uh, the high profile he's had uh, in defying a lot of, of, um, of you know, uh, CDC and, and COVID guidance. And he's certainly polling well. 
but a lot of, of polling leaders this far out have not been able to sustain their advantage. Uh, in the uh, Senate bucket, uh, I, I actually think one of the stronger possibilities would be Tim Scott from South Carolina. Uh, I know Tom Cotton and Josh Hawley have talked about it, uh, but I do think there is something appealing to the Republican primary electorate about a black conservative candidate. Mm -hmm. We've seen that in recent years with people like Herman Cain, right? Uh, and and yet Tim Scott is by far the strongest uh, in, in that uh, in that genre to uh, to be you know considered for uh, for higher office, and then. Uh, in the former administration bucket, clearly Mike Pompeo and Mike P Pence want to keep themselves relevant, but Nikki Haley uh, is very ambitious, clearly wants to run. Uh, I do think that she is, uh, she's got her finger in the wind quite a lot on, on, you know, how close she wants to be to Trump. And I think people are having a hard time understanding exactly where she falls into the party. On the Democratic side, uh, look, I think Democrats have a real dilemma on their hands because Kamala Harris does not have the skill set to run a successful national campaign. Uh, she, you know, couldn't light up a room with a blowtorch when she tried to run uh, her own campaign for the Democratic nomination in 2020. She was supposed to be one of the front runners, right? Yeah. And, and you know, she has absolutely bombed uh, this portfolio. Uh, of handling the border um, in the Biden administration thus far. Uh, it's by far uh, the administration's weakest issue. So look, if Joe Biden does not run, uh, then you know, Kamala you know, would, would be a very weak front runner. But imagine if Joe Biden didn't endorse his own vice president. I mean, I think he'd be under heavy pressure to, to in, endorse her. Otherwise, it would seem like he's admitting that his administration was a failure. So that's Although Obama didn't endorse uh, Biden until late in the game, you know, correct? Well, Biden also didn't run uh, in 2016, right? Yeah. So it's it's not the same exact dynamic, right? But AOC will be eligible to run for president by a few weeks, and she could take up the Bernie Sanders mantle which in my opinion leaves an opening for someone who's a bit more moderate in the in the Democratic Party. And I'm not sure who that is. Is it a governor like a Gretchen Whitmer from Michigan? But I do think there is an opening. You know, in the time we have left, just a couple other questions. Uh, but I do want to get, uh, there's a lot of listeners and potential speaking engagements for you, David. What, what, how can they contact you and the Cook Political Report? You know, what do they have to do? Well, uh, go to cookpolitical.com. Uh, and uh, another way would be to go on Twitter. I'm at redistrict. Uh, I'm covering the redistricting process closely, but uh, feel free to send me a message. Uh, or uh, there's a form on the cookpolitical.com site and get in touch with me and, uh, and look forward to visiting. Good. And uh, you know, a couple other issues, surveys. Can, can we really trust them? So it depends what we're trying to trust them for, right? You know, if we have a very large uh, assortment of presidential approval polls that we can aggregate into, you know, samples of tens of thousands of people, I think they do provide a good time series of, okay, is the president up or down versus last month, right? 
yes. because we just have a, a large quantity of data. If we're looking for what is voters approval rating on specific issues or, or how does that change over time? Okay, that's fair. But what I think polling is having a harder time uh, telling us, and, and I think we're asking too much of its abilities, is to say who's ahead or behind in a very close uh, horse race, whether that's the Virginia governor's race, whether it's the 2020 presidential race. The problem is that pollsters uh, give out a margin of error, right? They say, okay, well, we have a 95% confidence threshold that this is within three points of how voters actually feel. Well, what they don't publish is the response rate to their poll. The truth is that only two or 3% of people are picking up the phone uh, and we're relying on those very small subsets of voters to, to uh, predict what the other 97 or 98% of people who are smart enough to screen their calls are thinking. And after a while, that just doesn't work, especially when you consider that, uh, that the voters who are answering tend to have higher uh, levels of, of societal and institutional trust, which correlates uh, to support, uh, or at least uh, correlates uh, with support for Democratic candidates or inversely with uh, support for Trump. So that has confounded us. And you know, so people ask me, what do we do if we don't have polls to rely on? And my advice is to watch the hard data, hard election data from uh, from a lot of the off-year races and legislative special elections that don't get any attention, but they do indicate which way the winds are blowing. And what I'll be curious about beyond just the governor's races is the Virginia House of Delegates, uh, which is also up for election uh, on November 2nd. If we do see Republicans picking up four or five seats, getting closer to a tie in the House of Delegates, that would tell me, all right, Republicans are are on track to, to take back the U.S. House of Representatives. Okay. Okay, yeah. there is a question that came in on the comments. Anything to note on the 2022 governor races and specifically Whitmer in Michigan? Yeah. Uh, look, I think a lot of Democrats are going to be vulnerable in these governor's races. Uh, not only Whitmer in Michigan, uh, who has uh, has struggled to pass her uh, the agenda that she ran on, yeah. uh, but also Tony Evers in Wisconsin um, and uh, the Republican lieutenant governor there, Rebecca Cleefish, is, is running. Uh, and so, look, uh, Democrats have have uh, open seats as well uh, in Pennsylvania. Uh, Democrats are gonna be trying to, uh, to, to pick up Republican seats in Arizona, uh, in uh, Florida, in Georgia. Uh, I, I think in the case of Georgia, uh, Governor Kemp being bashed by Trump perhaps enables him to, to, uh, to run stronger in the general election. And Stacey Abrams, by the way, is having, I think, second thoughts about running another campaign for governor now that she sees how bad the environment is for Democrats. Uh, it's similar to the dynamic in the House where you're seeing now up to 13 Democrats who've announced that they're not running for re-election there because they don't think they're going to be in the majority. And one, one kind of sidebar I'm watching on these governor's races is Republican primaries to incumbent governors, uh, particularly in Idaho in Ohio, uh, potentially in Alabama, where you have Republican primary bases uh, who are upset in some quarters at, uh, at what the governor's 
did with restrictions in COVID. And I'll be curious if one or two of those governors go, go down in a primary. You know, Dave, in the brief time we have left, I do want to flash back to 2020 elections. I know in your speeches, you say they were a lot closer than, than you know, most people realize. You know, can, can you expand on that? Yeah, you know, people tend to, to look at the overall popular vote in 2020, and Joe Biden won 7 million more votes, uh, or the Electoral College, which Joe Biden won by 74 electoral votes, 306 to 232. But when you add up the cumulative margins in the states that put him over the top in the Electoral College, Arizona, Georgia, and Wisconsin, Joe Biden actually won by a margin of 42,915 votes out of 159 million votes cast. Wow. That's a pretty darn small margin, especially considering that the polls had him up by eight or nine points nationally, yeah. uh, especially uh, when you know President Trump's approval rating was in the low 40s and he was getting very low marks on his handling of COVID. That just goes to show you how closely divided uh, the country is and how, uh, how hardened and stubborn that divide is. Uh, I suspect that you know in 2024, uh, the Biden administration is going to still be defending a lot of or trying to defend a lot of things that have gone wrong. It's a complicated world that we live in. Yeah. And with that burden on Democrats, Republicans and very possibly Donald Trump could start out the, the slight favorites to retake the White House. And those House mm -hmm. votes were very close as well. well, right? What was the bottom line for the House? Yeah. In, in the House, uh, Democrats only managed to ha hang on to the House by five seats. And uh, and their margin was uh, 222 to 213. It was just 31,758 uh, votes in, across five races that decided House control. Wow. All right. As you can see, David is a wizard. Uh, that <laughs> He can talk uh, whatever uh, chamber that you want. I, I can personally attest uh, he's been tested on uh, what lawmakers are in which districts, not just in your own state, but all states. Okay, right. So right. he is definitely a wizard. And David, we have to thank you for your time because I, I know you, you're very busy, but I think I'll see you tonight in D.C. at an event for Texas A&M students. <laughs> I think you're going to be there. So, you know, you know, we can down one, you know, this evening as a, <laughs> as a thank you that I don't even have to pay for. <laughs> Though that's Jim's favorite kind of thank you, by the way, David. Yeah. Yep. All right. Thank you so much, David. Uh, that is House Editor for the Cook Political Report, David Wasserman. Thank you so much, David. Appreciate thank you that. Both and big fan of the show. Excellent. Love that. Love that, uh, Jim. So let's say that David is right, and when we get to, um. Well, after following the 2022 elections, what does all that mean for the farm bill? That means that you'll probably have an extension to begin with, I think, uh, okay. because uh, the, uh, the committees are not bipartisan any longer. On some issues, they are, but not on the farm bill. So I think the knee-jerk uh, reaction should be a short-term extension until they clear the decks, because even in the Senate in 20. 
2024 elections, that doesn't look good for you know Democrats either, uh, Chip, because okay. of the numbers uh, game. So I, I think that's the uh, first part. And you would see a, a, a flip-flop on the focus of the ag sector issues if, uh, as David predicts now, subject to caveats because mm -hmm. we're a good year away, uh, yeah, uh, uh, you're more than uh, uh, right. a year away. Uh, but you would see a, a focus uh, completely different than what you're seeing right now on Capitol Hill relative right. to the ag sector. Excellent. Excellent. All right. Good job setting that one up, Jim. Sure. It was a great conversation with Dave. Really yeah. appreciate it. Hey, this morning on AgriTalk, we've got Machinery Pete, and we're going to talk the economy with Rich Bosson. And a heads up for later this week on Thursday, both hours of AgriTalk are going to focus on ethanol and the RFS. We've got a great lineup of the stakeholders that are ready to share their visions for the industry. Have a great week, everybody. Keep watching for those signals.